only been doing this for 40 years. Um, thank, thank you, Kit. We're rejoining Jesus and the story of Jesus on the mountain. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the story of the Sermon on the Mount. It's an actual mount. It was in Capernaum or near Capernaum and in Galilee, which is in the north. And Matthew presents to us at the end of chapter 4 what has just taken place. And what's just taken place, he says, at the end of chapter 4 is these hordes of people from all over Israel, from all the southern areas, Jerusalem, Judea, the northern areas above Galilee, even the, the eastern side beyond the Jordan River. People are coming from everywhere to be around Jesus. They've heard of his miracles. Some of them are coming to help people get uh, healed that are sick. Many of them are coming just to be around this miracle worker. Others are drawn to, to hear him and to learn from him. And they've gathered together at this moment and at this apex moment in the ministry of Jesus, he pulls them aside and does this remarkable sermon, body of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. It's striking. He'll go through Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and then in chapter uh, 8 and 9, Matthew will present to us Jesus in some of his continually astounding works. You will see him casting out demons. You'll see, you will see many healings that take place. And after all this body of work is done, where Jesus has presented his, his ultimate teaching in Matthew 5 through 7, and then he has demonstrated his power in innumerable situations in Matthew chapter 10, he sends his disciples out for the first time to go out on their own. They've got the truth. They've got the message of the kingdom. They've got the visual of the power of the king. And then they're going forth. And here in this passage, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we have this remarkable teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And this term, kingdom of heaven, I think Pastor Ben did a great job. If you haven't seen that sermon, last week's sermon, he, 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 he unpacks the whole concept of what it really means, this kingdom of heaven. But basically, the idea of it is it is not a, king, it's not a geographic location. It is a king's dominion. It is the king that is ruling over the lives of his children. And, and he is describing here in Matthew 5 through 7, the lifestyle that he expects them to have as subjects, citizens of his kingdom. In the first part, he gives the values they're going to have. We looked at those, the Beatitudes. And then he's turning, now he's turning to begin to talk about the practice of their lifestyle, the way they behave, the way they respond. Last week, Ben talked about the, the influence of this kingdom being salt and light. Today, Jesus presents to us a message about connection with the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, this passage that we're going to read in a moment has great relevance to us. It enables us to understand how to benefit from the Old Testament, how to read the Old Testament, how to look at Jesus in light of the Old Testament, and how to understand the role of His commandments in our lives. But for the people that were listening... It was utterly foundational. It was life-changing because their entire lives they had lived in light of the Old Testament Scriptures. That's all they had. And Jesus is now saying, here's how I connect the two. How I connect the prophets, most specifically. Here's how I connect the law that you've lived your lives under and how my principles relate to that. 
It gives us great understanding of how to read the Old Testament for ourselves. So it's a, it's a pregnant passage. And here's what we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We're going to look this morning in a moment at five things we learn about Jesus and the law of God. But first, let's pray together. Lord, we gather in this place. We're watching online on this beautiful Sunday morning. Lord, thank you for all that you've shown us already this morning that reminds us of your love of beauty, your value of giving a creation that we can enjoy because it is your desire that we know and enjoy you. Lord, teach us today. This is a confusing topic. How do the commandments, the law, relate to Jesus? How do we understand the Old Testament? How do we understand Jesus' commands? And Lord, I pray you teach us, change us. In Jesus' name, amen. There are five things we find here in this passage. The first of which is Jesus' kingdom is not about new priorities for human behavior. Jesus says this, don't think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass in the law until all is accomplished. Now, this statement when he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law, was important because that is exactly what a lot of his listeners thought. They thought he had come to abolish the law. This is the main criticism of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This guy is disregarding the law of Moses. And Jesus gathers on his own mount in order to look back to Mount Sinai and say, no, no, I, I, I haven't come to abolish these. The word abolish actually means to destroy. It's used in the New Testament of demolishing a house. He says, I, I haven't come to bring an entirely new set of priorities. It isn't like, you know, God had one thing that he gave to Moses, and now I'm giving you a whole new set of priorities. This is not a hostile takeover. You know, a corporation buys out another corporation, or, or a big company buys out a, another company. And you have, a, you have a company that has certain values and priorities, right? Maybe it's a, 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 they would say, we are all about quality and relationships. We get our market share by knowing our clients, our customers, and treating them well for being known for quality. We will sell less but charge more and make it worth a desire, something that has our, our customers want to buy us because of the way we treat them, the way we treat our employees, and the standard of quality that we produce. We will sell less, but for more. And all of a sudden, this company is bought out. 
And now this small company is brought in under a new regime. And this new regime has a totally different set of criteria. They say we are not all about quality and relationships. We are all about numbers. And well, numbers. And we value different things. We will get our market share by cutting corners, a lesser product, but it will be cheaper. We will charge less, but sell more. And quite honestly, they would not put this on their value statement, on their core values. We'll make it work by getting cheaper, largely unskilled employees and work them to the bone. Two completely different philosophies and priorities, a way of doing business. And we might say, well, I think you ought to merge the two and so to work, well, fine. But we understand that's a hostile, that feels hostile when you're an employee in that setting. Maybe it would feel hostile to the customers that have been with the previous company. And Jesus is saying, this is not a hostile takeover. I'm not bringing in a, a whole new set of priorities. I remember reading the story years ago of uh, when Lou Holtz became the coach of the Notre Dame football squad. He was replacing a man named Jerry Faust. Jerry Faust had been a high school coach before he went to Notre Dame. It was a, it was a, a, a real uh, creative role. They took a high school guy and put him in the storied position of the coach of Notre Dame. It didn't actually work out real well. He was a wonderful man, but... But he was a fairly loose, loosey-goosey type of guy, and, and they were barely above 500, which at Notre Dame at the time was not successful, and so he was let go, and Lou Holtz was brought in. I remember reading the story of the first meeting you had with the team. The team had, you know, they had been now under the regime of the former coach for a number of years, and it was very relaxed, and, 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 and Lou Holtz got up, and the guys are sitting in the meeting, and they're all slouched there, and, and some of them are sort of bored, and they're slouching in their chairs. They got their legs crossed, sort of sitting there. And Lou Holtz came in, and they introduced Lou Holtz. He didn't even say hello. He didn't even say, hi, I'm Lou. Uh, this is how he came up to the podium. He stood there, and this little guy who describes himself as looking like a chicken, and he looks out, and he says, sit up straight. And one of the big tackles recorded, at that moment, we knew there was a new sheriff in town. Jesus is saying, I'm not a new sheriff. I'm not bringing in a whole new way of doing stuff. I don't have a, a whole new bag of rules. I'm coming in with the same priorities. I am not abolishing the law and the prophets. The second thing he says that we are taught here in verse 17 is Jesus himself is this righteous way of life that is required for his kingdom. He says, I am not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, it's not hard to figure out what he means when he says fulfill the prophets, right? We know there are so many, there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. We know there are certain things he's going to actually say upon the cross. He's going to quote those passages and fulfill them. There are hundreds of, 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 of Old Testament prophecies, and they are fulfilled in Christ. He himself did accomplish what they said would happen. But how does he fulfill the law, the commandments? Well, by accomplishing all they required, that they focused on him. Now, again, we might ask the question, wait a minute, 
This is the problem. I mean, it says to honor the Sabbath, but Jesus does things that we don't think are appropriate on the Sabbath. I mean, Jesus hardly ever washes his hands ceremonially. I mean, we never see him washing his hands the way you're supposed to. You know, washing your hands, and they had all these rules of how many washed. Uh, he, he, he does things that don't seem appropriate with the law. What do you mean he fulfilled them? He seemed, well, Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law. And I think this is what he meant. First of all, he's saying there are things in the law that were uniquely given to Israel. There were civil laws because they were a nation. But he said, now the people of God are going to be a part of every nation. I will be their law. I will teach them how to live as citizens of my kingdom within the kingdom that they live. There will be these laws of the Sabbath. And he says, the whole principle of Sabbath was to have one day that was different of the seven. It would be in the word Sabbath, Sabbath, Shabbat means rest. And Jesus says, I will bring you rest. You will find that rest ultimately in relationship with me. Practicing one day of seven of being different from others is, is, is wise. It even goes back to the creation account in some passages. God rested on the seventh day. There's value in that. But he says, as far as the command, the way that they will experience rest is in me, in me, you will find your rest. He makes that specific statement. He talks about how he will be the fulfillment of the, the, the sacrificial laws, which were part of the law. He says you, you had temporary coverings for your sin. And you would do this by sacrificing animals, particularly lambs. I am the lamb. I am the one. These commandments ultimately, he says, are fulfilled in me, but there are commands. The moral law of God that are universal, and I will reiterate those in my teaching. I will present them and embellish them and, 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 and unpack them for you. But this is what he says, and this, this to me is one of the most powerful things of his statement. He says, but I am the fulfillment those laws are fulfilled to me. What's he saying? This. Those laws describe the way I live. Those laws describe what God looks like in human form. He said, if you ever want to describe how would God live if he walked on planet earth? Read the Bible. Read the commandments. Because God's incarnated form lives the way of the commandments and so he says the very way I believe humans are created in the image of God to live is the way I live I come among you the laws are fulfilled in me they visualize me I live those laws they are my laws now what is Jesus telling us when he says the law is fulfilled in him? Well, one thing he's telling us is how to read the Old Testament. Because from a, to read from this point on, reading the Old Testament from a purely historical rendering, what it meant to the people of that time will be unsatisfactory. That things have changed. 
Jesus says, if you really want to understand the prophets and understand the law, you must read toward Christ the way someone has learned to read a good novel. If you've read The Lord of the Rings, or really any great novel, and you read through it once, the whole time you're reading the story, you're reading towards the end, right? You know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Once you've read it once, once you know the ending, and if you're like a, a, a number of, of us, a lot of us have read The Lord of the Rings a number of times. But I know how it's going to end. And now I read and, I, and, and I'm engrossed in the story. And I say, oh, I didn't, I didn't pick that up the first time. Oh, I see how that... But all the while, I'm reading it with the end in view. I know where it's going. I've recently been reading a book one of the guys in our church wrote, Mike McNesby. It's a story about the Phillies in 2008. And uh, I think I have that there. Yeah. Hard to believe. This is, this is a promo for Mike's book. But uh, he doesn't know I'm doing this. But it's a story of the Phillies championship. Why does anybody want to read Mike's book? Because they won the championship. I mean, if he wrote a different year, but you go in and you hear the groundskeeper stories, you hear the reporter stories, you hear players and coaches, you, you hear the guy that sells hot dogs, you hear all their stories through the year. And it all is interesting because it gives you a feel of what was going on, what was going on, what was... But the reason it matters is because you know how it ends. What Jesus is saying when you read the Old Testament... You now read it differently. You sort of read the story with the end. He says, they all point to me. I'm the center of it. Even those, those ceremonial uh, actions, even those civil laws, even those moral laws, I would be, you're really reading about what does God look like in human form when Jesus, when, when, the, when, when Moses says you're, 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 you're not to commit murder or commit adultery, when, when you're to live in faithfulness, what does God look like? What does it present about Jesus when you're reading those, those different sacrifices because they're all foreshadowing Christ. Jesus says, it's all my story. And so we read the story from the end through the beginning. Their laws, these laws, Jesus said, are describing my life. The lifestyle I'm both advocating and practicing. They're describing me. And anyone that is building their lives around me as their center. The third thing he tells us is in verse 19, greatness in this kingdom is living this righteous way of life and helping others do the same. Verse 19, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, I'm not trying to, to, to dumb down the laws. I'm not trying to diss these standards of righteousness. I do believe there's a particular way to live. And I'm commanding those that, commending those that seek to live it this way. It's how I live as a human, he says. It's the best way. It's the most normative way. It's the most holistic way to live a truly human experience. 
And he says, so those that are great in the kingdom are those that live that way and those that commend others to live that way. He says the laws are important. The scriptures then, Old Testament scriptures are important. My principles of godliness are important. Now he's speaking to the Pharisees and in a minute he's going to hammer these guys. She's going to shock them actually by something he says. But at this moment they would have been very excited because he's commending embracing the principles of, of godliness and building them into your life. I read, Marianne was actually telling me a story recently of an individual friend of hers who was raised in legalism and was talking to a Bible teacher. And she was grieving over what felt like lost years. And many of us have, have, have struggled with this question. Lost years because she just lived so much in legalism. And were those years just lost? You know, that I, I thought wrong and I, I majored on the minors and all the things we do is in, in legalism. And this wise Bible teacher asked her a question. He says, when you were raised in a legalistic culture, did you learn the Bible? She said, oh yeah. Everybody had to memorize all kinds of Bible. We did as kids. We did uh, all the way through. And uh, we were always taught... Uh, Yes, got a lot of Bible. And he said, well, he said, all that Bible that went in, all that truth that went in, will be a bedrock for you as you live your life. I, I cannot tell you the number of people that I have, I have been involved with through the years. I found it true in my own journey that would say I was raised in somewhat of a legalistic background, but I thank God for how much the Bible was built into me because now in the difficult circumstances of life, I just find I have the scripture to flow back to. I, 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 it's the foundation that I'm grateful was built in for me. Jesus is here saying those that, that, that build in a foundation even some of it's, if it's tempered, and he's going to speak to this and it, to the legalism, there is value, there is commendability, there is honor if we have embraced Scripture and these truths. What Jesus is going to talk about is not that the law and the principles of godliness are wrong. He's going to talk about, I'll tell you what, we, what he's talking about in just a moment. He is about to give this shocking broadside to the legalist. But he is also saying that anyone that embraces the scriptures, all the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, and helps others to do the same is honored. The fourth thing, the standards of living righteously are impossibly higher than we tend to imagine. This is where he, he knocked them right out of their socks. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh my goodness. I mean, this is like saying, um, unless your righteousness exceeds the C.S. Lewis and the Francis Chan and the Tim Keller and whoever your spiritual hero is today, uh, you got no chance being a part of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this was... This was smoking hot statements. The Pharisees were, were not a political group. The Pharisees were just a group of people that were known as the most devout and the most serious about their faith. The teachers of the law were the scribes. They were the ones that taught the scriptures. 
The priests were the ones that then led the the worship. But he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is prepping them for what he's going to talk about in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is really important. If you write anything down, write this down. That the problem with the people of his day was not that they had a high view of God's law. It was that their view of God's law was too low. They felt they could do it. They felt they could accomplish it. That they could, and and if you went to a Pharisee and said, do you have a problem with anger? No, no. Do you have a problem with with your language? No, no. Do you have a problem with with, with, um, adultery? No, I I don't. I know. I'm circumspect. Many of them would have said, I check off every one of the Ten Commandments. That's why Jesus in the next few verses is going to unpack. What does it really mean when he says don't commit murder? What does it really mean when he says don't commit adultery? He's going to take it heart deep and say, you guys think you're keeping the law. You're not keeping the law. Because the law as he is going to present it is continually speaking to a level where they had not taken it. In order to make it obtainable and attainable, they dumb down the standards. Quite frankly, we all tend to do that. So in the next section, in the six sections of Matthew's chapter 5, Jesus is going to address that. And he's going to address these topics. He's going to say it this way. Anger. I'm going to talk about anger. And the next topic he's going to, and the next statement he's going to make is You've heard that they said that meant this. But I tell you, he's going to do that with each of these teachings. First, he's going to say anger. You heard this, but I'm telling you it's this. You heard lust. You heard it was this. I'm going to tell you it's this. You heard divorce. I'm going to tell you it's this. You heard oaths, retaliation, love for enemies. He says, you've heard this, this perspective on it. I'm not throwing out those laws, he says. I just want you to to, to see what they're really saying. That when it says, don't murder, it actually means if you're ever angry at somebody, if you ever call them a harsh name, you've committed against the commandment, do commit murder. And people are sitting there going, what? And he says, don't commit adultery. And they're sitting there saying, what are you talking? And 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 then he says, don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. He says, what are you talking about? Jesus says, you guys think you're not an adulterer? You think you're not a murderer? Understand what the law is really saying. Jesus says, I'm not abrogating. I'm not abolishing. I'm not demolishing the law. I'm just keeping it real, guys. And I'm telling you what it's really saying. And I'm saying to you, if you think you are attaining a relationship with God, if you think you are attaining entrance into heaven, by your ability to keep the law, then you better be a lot farther along than the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and, and the most godly people you know. If that's the basis on which you're living your Christian life and, and expecting your spiritual verdict of acceptance. So he says things like this to the Pharisees who were external focused who are not thinking about motives, thoughts, desires. Matthew 23, verse 13. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Same group of people. You're hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves don't enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Why is that? Luke eleven fifty two 52 tells us. Here's what he says. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves haven't entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. He says, the keys to entering into the relationship are understanding the laws are understanding the standards of righteousness. You've dumbed them down to a way that that people think they can meet them. You think you can meet them. You've taken away the very key that opens the door to life. By communicating to people, you can measure up in your own righteousness. Jesus says, you've got to understand it's righteousness from the inside out. It's a righteousness that in your own resources, you cannot and will not attain. All of this is preparing us for the ultimate message that Jesus is trying to present in saying this when he says, the laws fulfilled in me. It's centered in me. Jesus is the only one who lives righteously. And he is willing to do so through broken people. Here's what he's saying. These laws are fulfilled in me. They are not fulfilled in you without me. That's why we read this in Romans chapter 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. But sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Listen to this verse. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking about living the Christian life in your own strength. He never mentions the word the, 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 the Holy Spirit in all is Romans 7. It is a total picture of defeat, of somebody trying to live the Christian life. Romans 6, is a, it's a person that has embraced Christ as Savior. Romans 7 is this sad, uh, defeatist view of the Christian life. And he says, what I want to do, I don't, I, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. I mean, I, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And then he comes to Romans chapter 8, and I believe it's 21 times the Holy Spirit is presented. In other words, he's saying, how do you live the Christian life? How do you fulfill the law of God? How do you fulfill the standards of God's righteousness? They are fulfilled in you by walking in the power of Jesus' Spirit. The only, the, the greatest heresy in the Christian church is this. Somebody other than Jesus Christ can live the Christian life. There is nobody else. Only Jesus. Jesus says, I fulfill him. I live the life. I live righteously. And those who live not according to their flesh, their own resources, but live in dependence on me, they also are fulfilling that law 
in their lives. But it is the only way. And so what Jesus is going to do in the next few passages, he's going to help us understand, well, what does it mean don't murder? And I would guess most of us here today would say, well, as I understand the world's, you know, the concept of murder, I haven't killed anybody. Now, maybe you have. There's grace for that if you have. But most of us would say, no, I, I have not murdered anyone physically, volitionally. But Jesus is going to say, well, yeah, let me just tell you what's really behind that statement. Don't murder. Let me tell you what it means to not be an adulterer in the true spirit of the commandment. The whole purpose of what Jesus is going to say is to be trying to drive us to one place. We can't do this on our own. We need to not be Roman 7-ing it, which we all try. We need to cross over to Romans 8 and say, only as I'm living and walking in the power of the Spirit can I fulfill these principles of righteousness but that Jesus who is the fulfillment this whole life fulfills the law is willing to fulfill that in me I want to close just with a short story I'm not going to read the whole story I'm going to highlight it try to tell it to you it's a story that the first time I read it it blew me away it's a it's a story by Flannery O'Connor it's called Revelation and Flannery O'Connor, she wrote uh, a number of unique stories. This is my favorite, at least of the ones I have read of hers. And it's called Revelation because it is about what was revealed to a woman named Mrs. Turpin. Mrs. Turpin was a good Christian woman, and she attended a good Christian church in the South. And the story is about her in a doctor's waiting room. And Mrs. Turpin goes in and... She's with her husband, Claude, who never says a word the whole time they're there. But she's there, and, and she's analyzing the room. And everything's sort of through the eyes of Mrs. Turpin. And she looks at the other people in the room. She sees another woman there who is um, lower class, she believes. And her son is dirty, and he's sniveling and not really clean. And, and there's another lady there that's an obviously put-together woman in nice clothes, and she connects with her. There's a number of other people in the room. There's one older woman there who has a college-age daughter, and, and she's just sort of reading the room. She comes in, and she's frustrated because the only seat would have been on the bench with the woman, with the, 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 the little boy, and the little boy is sort of taking up two people's seat, and he doesn't slide over and impolitely is unaware. And Mrs. Turpin is irritated as she looks at this kid and catches the eye of the nice-appearing woman. Uh, and and the, the woman basically looks back at her sympathetically as if to say, well, if that was my son, he'd certainly move over. I understand your frustration. She has to sit in a wooden chair off to the side. As you go through the story, I just want to highlight a couple of things. She's, she's thinking, as she looks at this little boy, if, if that were my child, he'd, he'd certainly make room for a person. As she's making these assessments, she's sitting down now, and so she addresses the woman that she connects with. Um, and so she talks about the clock, and she says, wow, that is a, a nice-looking clock. And the other woman responds to her, yes, very accurate, perfect time. 
And then then the woman with the little boy wants to get in the conversation. And she says, you want to know where you can get one of them their clocks? And she says to herself, no, I have a clock. But she says to Mrs. Turpin, you can get one with green stamps. That's most likely where he'd gotten his. Save you up enough, you can get most anything. I I got some jewelry through my green stamps. And Mrs. Turpin, of course, looks at her benevolently, but actually is saying inwardly, you ought to have bought yourself a wash rag and some soap. She then talks in the course of the conversation. She and her husband are pig farmers. They have a very successful farm. They have other things as well, but it's her pig she's most proud of. And so she's talking with this other lady, and they're talking about how it's important to diversify. We have pigs, but we also have cows. We also do uh, crop uh, for, for, you know, for sale. The mother of the little boy says, one thing I don't want is hogs. Nasty, stinking things, a grunting and a rooting all over the place. To which Mrs. Turpin replies, Our hogs are not dirty, and they don't stink. We hose them down every day. They're far cleaner than some children I know. The woman catches this one, and she looks towards the wall. And as she looks to the wall, she just mutters, Well, I know I wouldn't scoot down no hogs with water. All this is continuing to go on. And, of course, Mrs. Turpin is internalizing this statement. You wouldn't have no hog to scoot down, Mrs. Turpin said to herself. Again, she's not saying this out loud. This is internalized, right? All the while, there is a woman with a college-age daughter. And this college-age daughter is reading a book. But she is beginning to be an issue to Mrs. Turpin because she is sensing Particularly when she's, Mrs. Turpin is talking, this girl looks above her book and, and just has a hostile expression. She's a student at a liberal college, it's actually Wesley College, I think it's Massachusetts, if I know where it is. But she's looking and she is glaring at Mrs. Turpin's patronizing demeanor. Her name, the young girl, is Mary Grace. And so this is going on, and, and every little while, Mrs. Turpin and the well-dressed lady are giving each other a knowing look. At that same moment, she's getting a glaring picture, a glaring response from the college-age girl. All right, let me just get to the end. <laughs> Mrs. Turpin says this one time, as she's sensing all that I, she just feels led to say this. She said, if it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think all who I could have been besides myself and what I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. I could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have got Claude, who has not said a word. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you, she cried aloud. And at that moment, the book hit her right above the eye. (laughs) The college girl lost it and flung it. Mrs. Turpin is stunned, falls to the ground. Of course, everybody in the room rushes to care for Mrs. Turpin, is furious at the young woman. 
And as she fired the book, the young woman says to Mrs. Turpin, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Now, Mrs. Turpin goes home to her farm, and this is the culmination of the story. She's very upset. She's upset with the girl, of course. She's also upset with God. And she's out there by her hogs, looking over the hogs and looking up to the sky. And as she's there, she's angry for God allowing such a scenario with all she does to help people, all she does for the church. And how could anybody see her the way this girl sees her? Here's the significance of the story. The author gives the girl the name Mary Grace because she is going to be the means of grace to Mrs. Turpin. Mrs. Turpin is there and she says this to God. Why did you send a message like that for? She said, how am I a hog and me both? How am I saved And from hell too. How can you allow someone to say this to me? And at that moment, at the end of the story, as she's looking up, God enables her to see a vision. And the vision is of this walkway that is going up to heaven. She's standing there, and the end of the story is this. And the story is, as she's watching, she sees all of these individuals, all the people around her in her life that... that, that she is aware of, a great tribe of people, and she recognizes them. And she sees her and Claude and others like her, but she also sees, sort of before they come, she sees this great group of people that are laughing and jumping and and cheering, and and they're sort of the, the less thans in her mind, and they're singing, and it isn't particularly on key, but it's abandoned with joy. And then she sees another group, and she realizes it's her people. And they are going to heaven. But they're walking with sort of shocked expressions on their faces. They're singing too, quieter, definitely on key. But they look stunned. Because they realize they're in the back. And these crazy people running ahead, the people that she would have called the broken people, the people that really couldn't quite make it in her estimation of life. And the whole picture that is presented there is that Mrs. Turpin and her friends were confronted with themselves and how little of grace they had really embraced. Jesus wants us to hear in the Sermon on the Mount We are broken people. We are not people that are going to put ourselves together enough and and that being a Christian means I've got to have it together and and I've got to be a a good testimony, which often means I've got to have it together and I don't want anybody to see me in my weakness. Usually, Jesus will use your brokenness and your desperate need for Jesus to be a far louder message for Him And all the times in your life when you feel good about how together things are. In this Sermon on the Mount, he's going to remind us, it's all about Christ. The whole Testament story is just a prelude to say, 
We're pointing the way to Jesus. And everything about our lives is about Jesus. It's really about broken, desperate, dependent people. And all the things that are going on in your life now that make you feel like my life's out of control. Things have never been worse. I've never been uglier. Maybe they're the gift of a merry grace of something that God is using to just say, it's not about you. It's about embracing Christ. It's the freedom to say, everything is designed to be centered and fulfilled in Jesus. All those commandments, they're just pointing the way to the Jesus life. But they certainly weren't presented to say, okay, now go and do this and be this. They're rather saying, Lord, I see myself and I'm not living like that. I need Christ. I need him every moment. I need him every hour. I need him every day. And the more God graces us with failure, the more it reminds us how desperately we need him. He says, the law and the prophets, I'm not trying to get rid of them. I'm not trying to demolish them. No, there's not a new new, uh, regime in town. There's not a new sheriff. I'm bringing the same principles of righteousness, but I'm saying you can live these. You can live differently. But not because of you. Because I come among broken people. I come to live through them. I come to be with them. That we can live differently because we have Christ. Lord, we come to you today. There's so much of Mrs. Turpin in us. Lord, if we were allowed to have all of our thoughts put on paper and all of our responses to others was recorded in what we were really thinking in circumstances, I wonder how much of Mrs. Turpin would really be there. So, Lord, we want to embrace the things you throw at our lives that humble us, that are making us feel more dependent, out of control. Because, Lord, it seems so common that those are things that drive us to Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love you. We adore you. We've tried living without you. We've tried as Christians at times to live without you. You are our everything. So Lord, do what you need to do with with us. To bring us as those people that skip and find our joy in Christ. And Lord, thanks for coming that we can. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy this, Lord. Amen.